Hey listeners, you've heard on the podcast from casting directors and Broadway directors just how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. The Breakdown is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you authentically grow your following without using bots, fake followers, or anything like that. I particularly love the welcome packet and the videos they include that help you optimize your account. And wow, did I learn a lot. The TSMA is offering an exclusive discount for our listeners. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, on to the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. Hey, listeners, this week I'm bringing you my conversation with two-time Tony Award nominee, Allison Frazier. Allison's Broadway credits include The Mystery of Edwin Drood, Romance Romance, for which she was nominated for a Tony Award, The Secret Garden, for which she was nominated for a second Tony Award, Tartuffe, Born Again, and Gypsy, starring Patti Lapone. Allison also toured as Madame Morrible in the national tour of Wicked. Off-Broadway credits include Paradise Lost and Aaron Marks' Squeamish, both at Theatre Row, First Daughter's Suite at the Public Theatre, for which she was nominated for a Drama Desk Award, Heartbreak House, for which she received the Calloway Award for Best Actress in a Classical Play, Enter Laughing at the York, Signature Plays at the Signature Theatre, David Ives' The School for Lies at Classic Stage Company, The Divine Sister at the Soho Playhouse, Terrence McNally's Dedication or the Stuff of Dreams opposite Marion Seldes and Nathan Lane at Primary Stages. I wish I saw that. Trina in March of the Falsettos and in Trousers at Playwrights Horizons. Up against it, Beehive in the world premiere of Tennessee Williams in Masks, Outrageous and Austere opposite Shirley Knight, among others, among so many others. Regional credits include work for Williamstown Theatre Festival, the Cape Playhouse, Maltz Jupiter, the Muni, George Street Playhouse, Berkshire Theatre Festival, among so many others. Film and TV credits include Gotham, Happy, High Maintenance, Law & Order SVU, Happy-ish, Smash, It Could Be Worse, Blowtorch, Socks and Bonds, Understudies, Jack in a Box, The Thing About My Folks, and The Sound of Silence opposite Peter Skarsgård. She can be heard on thousands of radio and television commercials, Grand Theft Auto 3 and 5, innumerable audiobooks, and many albums, including three solo efforts, A New York Romance, Men in My Life, and Tennessee Williams' Words and Music. Listeners, it goes without saying that Alison Frazier is a theater legend. She has worked everywhere with everyone and has created some iconic roles in the American theater lexicon. The year before the pandemic, I had the pleasure of working with Allison in two productions, Death Trap, The Cape Playhouse, directed by episode six podcast guest, Tony nominee, Marsha Milgram Dodge, and Paradise Lost at Theater Row, which closed in March of 2020. Wah, wah. I am thrilled to be sharing my conversation with Allison. Now, we know that no actor's path is the same. We've heard this before, but I think it's helpful to hear how Allison's career started, what her early years in New York were like, what Allison considers the job that really elevated her status in the industry, and how she maintained an incredible career over decades in this business. Now, Allison is known for being a big part of composer Bill Finn's early group of actors who developed and gave voice to many iconic characters and songs. Mary Testa, Chip Michael Rupert and Carolee Carmelo are also part of this group who obviously all went on to have brilliant careers themselves. Allison explains that her relationship with Bill Finn is just that, 
It's a relationship that grows and changes and is sometimes strained. We talk a lot on the podcast about relationships in the industry, but I've never really thought about the longevity of these relationships. Allison has navigated this industry with such finesse, and I love hearing her talk about this. I also had to ask Allison all about the Secret Garden and how she landed the coveted role of Martha in the Secret Garden. And spoiler alert, it was not an easy or a normal audition process at all. I mean, is it ever? As always, if you like what you hear, please make sure you are subscribed so next week's episode with Tony Award winner Gavin Creel drops in your feed. Next week is our 40th episode. That is insane. Hundreds and hundreds of you are listening week after week, and I would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, or guests you'd love to hear on the podcast, or even just to say hi, shoot an email to info at thebreakdownpodcast.com. All right, listeners, without further ado, here is my chat with two-time Tony Award nominee and my dear friend, Allison Frazier. Allison, I'm so happy to be seeing you just because I always love seeing you, but I'm also happy to be doing this first in-person interview since the pandemic. It's so special and I feel like chats are just always better in person. So thank you well, for we, science. We actually hugged, which is a very nice thing to do. People are just starting to do that and uh, I am honored to be your first in-person guest and uh, let's have fun in the house of cognac and cigars. Oh my gosh, exactly. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Yes, we in are. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. In we are. My backyard, our backyard. Yes. yes. Uh, Steve and mine. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I love that. And I love that you became a Brooklynite. I love it. That happened about three years ago. Not a bad place to be. It and you not a bad place to be. And you were space. my roommate for a little bit, for oh. five days, right? Oh my gosh. When you came famously. Uh, to the rescue in the last show before the pandemic shut everything down, our last show, uh, which was Paradise Lost. Yes, yeah. yes. I think I've like ch- talked about that on the podcast before briefly because it's just a perfect example of something that no one really talks about or stories you don't really hear of, oh, you think you just go to an audition and you get an appointment and you go to a job and that's how you get jobs. But I had told the story before about how we had done Death Trap together mm-hmm. at the Cape Playhouse and had a wonderful time and wonderful. developed a friendship. And then you were doing Paradise Lost off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. And I was directing a show up in Massachusetts, right. have subl- right. sublet my apartment. It was Death Trap, wasn't it? It was a production of Death yeah. Trap. And that's why I had nowhere to live. So when I got called to do this job, mm-hmm. you... Um, graciously let me stay with you and you also got me the job so I really also owe you a lot because you had said I just worked with this actor and he's great and then Marina I had worked with so I'd gotten the job not from going to an audition but because there were people in the room that said kind well, things. it was more than that Robbie it was it was you know the fellow who had had the part for wasn't it three weeks didn't you only have a week before we enter, entered tech or something yeah like I think that? I had like two weeks it but insane. it was not a lot uh, I think we had like a week of tech, and but you only had like a week of rehearsal. Yes, yes. So we had it. been rehearsing for two weeks, and the fellow who was playing Adam was a very nice guy. He was a very talented guy, but uh, the material clearly disturbed him. And one day, uh, David and Marina, and so uh, we were complete. Um, but one by one, the powers that be kept coming into the room with just the young man 
who was obviously having a problem with some of the let's face it, pretty daunting material. I mean, mm-hmm. I did have syphilis sores all over my face. <laughs> you did. And I walked around with intestines <laughs> uh, uh, dripping off of my uh, restoration-style skirt. I, I think at, at one point there were five powers that be, you know, like the artistic director and, of course, the director was there. Everybody was in that room except for the rest of the cast. And then we were all ushered after about... I'd say a good hour, maybe a little bit more than an hour, hour and 15 minutes. We're all going, oh, what's going on? we got to rehearse, we got to rehearse. So the young man uh, was uh, uh, sort of ushered out, and we all wished him, you know, hail and farewell, and, you know, the best of luck with future endeavors. And then not as soon as the door closed, I just, I went over to Michael Parvey, the director, and I just whispered in his ear, call Robbie Simpson, now. <laughs> and then, of course, I, and, and then I did the cell, and then Marina did the cell. And weren't you called that afternoon? Oh yeah, that Didn't was that you night. Meet us that afternoon. It was uh, it was a night, and then the next day, I I, I came in the next day and um, had to leave that that other job. But yeah. um, I was happy. And weren't you like almost like your lines were almost learned like the second day? It was kind of hilarious. I would come home here to this yeah. beautiful brownstone that we're in, and I'd memorize them here. That's right. And I'd go, Robbie, are you working on your script? Oh my gosh! <laughs> and you made wonderful meals, and I'm so so grateful for that. And I just feel like that. That's a good story of sometimes like how things happen. And I actually think more actors get work like that. It's a business of relationships, mm-hmm. of networking, of people yeah, working with definitely. their friends. And that kind of leads me into my first kind of bigger question for you is you have such a long career in this business. You have television, so much theater. And, you know, I'm sure over time you've watched the industry and business change. We kind of were even just talking about that yeah. before we yeah. started recording. but. I wonder if you can talk about this part of your career that you're in the last 10 years. You've done some amazing things. Like I'd say like this chapter, like mm-hmm. First Daughter Suite, you've done Wicked, you did Paradise Lost. You Squeamish. Did Squeamish. Yeah. Um, I, and I think like maybe the beginning of this period, I'd say it was like Gypsy, which was an incredible production. Right, nice. How are you getting your work now? I mean, I'm sure like everything is different. I'm sure sometimes it's agents, sometimes it's people calling you, but... Like looking back on your career and then how you've maintained the career and how you've kept doing these incredible shows, like what what has helped you or or what do you feel like is the reason why you've been able to still be working now? I think a short answer is relationships and things, but I wonder what. Well, you know, there are relationships that go bad and relationships that that go good. You know, it's that that's a two way street. Uh, The truth is, I have not been doing a lot of theater. During the pandemic, because, well, there's no theater to <laughs> No, it done. has. No, it has. Um, I mean, hopefully it's going to come back, but I don't know what my place will be. I, you know, I might be doing a play in January in town, but again, I'm not sure. No and, one can be sure. You know, I might recommend you for that one, too. We'll, we'll see what happens, but, you know, you want to keep your hand in, and you do a lot of Zoom readings, and I don't necessarily find them particularly fulfilling. You know, it's a bunch of actors not being able to look each other in the eye and basically Mm -hmm. reading off of a script. Mm -hmm. And it's fun if it's like a a new script, because it's a new script that you're actually kind of feeling out. So it's like a first read. But 
I guess pre-pandemic, like the year before, that was the year we met, so that's why I know, but you went from like show to show to show that year. And I guess pre-pandemic, like what, what, I guess, what do you just have to say about where you are in the business now? Well, I have to say that pre-pandemic, that, well, what did I do? Heartbreak House, which I got the Callaway Award for, which is an off-road production of the Shaw play. That was because I have worked with David Stoller many, many times. Um, So I was offered that squeamish, which my dear friend Aaron Mark uh, wrote and directed, and he wrote it with me in mind, which is scary because it's a really scary play. (laughs) And for a long time, we, I wouldn't call us collaborators, but he wrote many plays and little movies for me specifically. Mm -hmm. And he has moved on to greener pastures. He is now doing... Uh, an Amazon uh, television series of, of uh, Empanada Loca. Oh. I think it's called Dolores Roach, and he's up in Toronto doing the series now. So, oh, that's so I feel like, oh, my baby bird has left the nest, and he's flying, and I just love him to death. And I'm going to his wedding next weekend, as a matter of fact. So there was Squeamish. Then, uh, first daughter suite, Michael John Lacusa has always been basically my favorite composer. I, I just adore his music and I I never considered my voice as a real Michael John Lacusa type voice because he requires you know just incredible range and uh, I don't I'm not sure that that's quite me now but but that's not true because I did that wonderful Tennessee Williams uh, words and music like just a couple of years before that and that's like all over the place well anyway it had never worked out with Michael John Lacusa before but I think that he realized that I loved him so much and mm-hmm. I was always on well, social media going, oh my God, The Wild Party, it's my favorite show ever. Michael John accuses. Mm-hmm. And this part came up and it just happened to be a part playing two women. It was Betty Ford, which was this wacky dream uh, where she danced and got drunk, but then it was also Nancy Reagan. So it was really two things that I can do very well. I can do comedy, wacky mm-hmm. comedy, wacky physical comedy well, eccentric dancing, I can do that. And it was just kind of jazzy singing and um, coming up with the comedy bits that aren't necessarily put on the page mm-hmm. and annoying the other actresses. <laughs> uh-huh. It's like, okay, we'll try it without it, but guess what? You're not going to get any laughs. And then at one point I said to Michael John Lacusa said, we really need a big laugh at the end of this song. And I'm like, all right, I'll give it to you. And it turned out that uh, it was when Betsy Morgan, brilliant singer, she was playing my daughter. And she was singing at the end. I wasn't singing. It's like, but the words aren't funny. But hey, Michael John and, and uh, Kirsten, the, the wonderful director, what if I do an extended split, Sally? Jane Kukowski was also doing a split in a show that year. She loves me. So she got the drama desk. Damn it. Damn, <laughs> damn her to hell. No, not really. I love her. I had done a show with her a long time ago with wow. David Schramm. Oh, part wow. two. So there is a, a world of circles. And just mm. as you and I have started our circle, Marsha and I had always, Marsha Milgram Dodd, mm-hmm. had always been very, very fond of each other. So in the great year before, or a year and a half before the pandemic... I really got to know her and love her very much and really be spoiled by her direction because it's so prepared, it's so calm, it's so loving, it's so collaborative. And there's just never, you always know that that's a person in charge 
who is not going to fly off the handle, who is not going to make you uncomfortable in the room to try something new. And, you know, on the first show I did with her, and I did that because I ran into her at a, a rehearsal studio. And she's like, when are we going to work together? And I said, I'd love to work with you. And she said, what do you think about Steel Magnolias? I said, count me in. And when we were working on Steel Magnolias, she said, how would you like to do Death Trap? And I had had a very difficult production of Death Trap up in the Berkshires because the director did not see eye to eye. Who was The director was Aaron Mark, and he's a lovely director. He did not see eye and eye uh, with the leading man. And what happened was it became teams. And of course, I was always on team Aaron. He wanted to do a very, very dark version of... Um, Death Trap, and the leading man wanted it to be much more light and funny and no property. And it was like, uh, that's not the way I see it either. So I'm, I'm, I think I have to do my show with my director. And it just turned out to be, you know, it was okay. I mean, we're all pros. We're going to do it. But then, and I told Marsha, Marsha this, and she said, oh, I don't want you to play the wife who dies of a heart attack. I, I want you to play Helga Tendorp. And I'm like... Really? Now that would be delightful because I thought there's there's a lot to that part, mm, mm-hmm. you know. And um, she's not just a a kooky old lady. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the fact that Marsha let me look quite different from any Helga Tendorp had ever looked. And then <laughs> when I saw Michael's eyes, and I said, oh, I have to have Michael Rader eyes for the show. <laughs> And then I have to have Marsha Milgram hair color. And then, you know, that wacky tracksuit. And I loved when Robert Petkoff, who had just, I'm so fond of him and his wife Susan, who played the wife brilliantly, so much better than I ever did. And of course, you were so wonderful in that play. And, you know, really creepy and malevolent, but unbelievably charming. You reminded me of that kind of Ted Bundy type, you know, real <laughs> handsome. That's what I was going for. You know, but that's what it's all about. So many, you know, serial killers are really charming psychopaths, you know, mm-hmm. and that's really what you got from you. Mm-hmm. And when you realize, ooh, uh, uh, Petkoff's character was really got more than he was, he was uh, gunning for. But Steel Magnolia's, she asked me to do Death Trap, and mm-hmm. I, I saw that beacon in the future. And for me, I don't know about you, Robbie, but for me, the most fun time in an actor's life, the most relaxing time, is when you know you have a really fun part coming up like in three or four months, mm-hmm. or even further ahead. It's like, well, at least I got that. Yeah. At least I got that. So I knew I had Death Trap coming mm-hmm. up, and I, I could get the kind of feeling of the Berkshires uh, uh, production kind of off of me, because it just was hurtful in so many ways uh but then what happened in the middle i think i did i think vicky lewis uh, was supposed to do cinderella at the muni and i know that she's worked with marcia a lot and she's wonderful but she dropped i I think she dropped out to do something uh you know maybe on tv or something i forget what but Marsha just asked me to do it, and I'm like, are you kidding? That's fantastic. And, you know, the Muni is someplace I've never worked at, but it's just an amazing experience. You know, uh, the only thing I can sort of liken it to are two things. Um, I've done Broadway on Broadway a couple of times. I, mm-hmm. did, I did it uh, with Gypsy, and I think I did it with Secret Garden. But I also did it 
Theater Under the Stars, uh, the first version, the first theatrical version of High School Musical, and it was 5,000 kids, and it was at the height of the High School Musical craze, and it was a fabulous show. It was Jeff Calhoun, another one of my very favorite directors, and... And past podcast guests. And and he's just, he's delicious. I love him. And again, he's a choreographer-director, and I really think that there's something very special about choreographer-directors, because they... They know how to get the best physicality out of their performance, even if they're not dancers, mm-hmm. really. I mean, the stuff we were doing in Death Trap, man. With Marsha, because Marsha is also a choreographer director. I know, of course. She's a brilliant choreographer. Uh-huh. But, you know, and, and Jeff Calhoun also brings such a, um, a masculine appeal to High School Musical because he was that kid. He was the football star who was also a star of the high school musicals yeah you know and there's just such a a wonderful wonderful uh, masculine uh, feel to his movement and i remember i saw a play out at the george street playhouse and it was a musical about baseball Mm. and the the guy that played the baseball player was nick cordero who was that lovely actor who was one of the first Victims uh, person that I personally knew died mm. of COVID. Mm. Big, big brawny, you know, baseball player. He must have been six four. Yeah. You know, you really do realize the ephemeral nature, not only of theater but of life. Yeah. You know, and I lost about seven people in wow. the, in, in during COVID. One of my lovely friends from the Signature Place, which was one of the few great plays I've done recently that I actually auditioned for Lila Neugebauer to do... Um, She's a dream uh, guest uh, to have on the podcast. Sandbox and uh, Funny House of a Negro. And I'm like, and I'm looking around at the audition and I'm going, oh, holy God, look at all the people that are here. Because it's like every great actress my age was there. You know, you got your Linda Eamond over there. You got your Harry... I mean, it was just like amazing. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, you know, I'm never going to get anything. And But they were looking at you and saying the same thing. They were well, like, oh, Alison Frazier's well, over there. <laughs> I have to say that if a director doesn't get initially scared of me, I do, I do believe that I'm most successful with directors that are not insecure because I will have ideas. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very upfront and say, look, I'll have 10 terrible ideas before I'll have one really great one, but that one really great one is worth trying out the other nine. It's just great. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I love that. Quote. You know, you have to do it, and some directors do not like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. one single bit, and yeah. I actually think that's one of the reasons. I, you know, I've done some nice, uh, you know, web series, and I've I've done some television. I'm really proud of. I loved working with Chris Maloney on Happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved uh, doing Gotham. I mean, these are kind of overt, but I'm not the type of person that can rehearse all by myself and go into a room and be the best I can be. Mm. You know, I really like to rehearse. And I'm, I'm pretty good at improving. so if I can do a web series, like It Could Be Worse, which is one of my favorite things mm. that I've ever done for Wesley Taylor and Mitchell Jarvis, or uh, Michael Cyril Crichton's um, Jack in a Box, then if I can just feel like myself, that's great. But I get very, very nervous 
like if I'm doing like a law and order mm-hmm. SVU, it's like, because all of a sudden it's not just you in a room with, oh, Robbie Simpson, he's so sweet. And maybe the stage manager's there and a couple of other actors are sitting on their phones in the corner. It's a hundred people standing around and in my mind waiting for me to mess up yeah. <laughs> and, and waste their time and make their lunches late. And they're all sweethearts, I'm sure. But that's just... I, I don't want to disappoint, and I think what that does is it really revs up a part of me that maybe does not translate that well mm-hmm. onto camera. Yet when I do, I, I mean, like interviews, I look at myself and say, how come I don't have a television career or, you know, a big film career? What's this all about? And I think it's, uh, you know, I've been complaining about insecure directors, but I guess that's an insecure actor. But I, I think a secure director in theater can make magic with me. And mm-hmm. I've been really lucky in the past few years because for the most part, everybody's been great. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get the idea, maybe this isn't going to be a good fit. Because I was alone for so many years. Uh, my husband died mm-hmm. in 2003. My husband, the great um, Rusty McGee, uh, he died of cancer in 2003. And I, I, I was alone for so long and I just did shows for the sake of doing shows for the insurance mm-hmm. and you know when my son went off to college it was like yeah sure might as well yeah might as well do that mm-hmm. you know even though I'm not crazy about the boy, yeah well, sure I'll do that mm-hmm. but I did one show that I just I mean it really made me sit up and say I don't ever want to do that again mm-hmm. uh, because I knew I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I knew that I didn't really respect the project. And I knew that the project didn't really need me. It mm. didn't need me. Mm-hmm. And it could be what it wanted to be with other lovely people. And after that, I really started to become much more choosy, not only about the shows that I would take, but about the shows I would audition for. Mm-hmm. And God bless my agent, Jed Abraham, and my manager, Tony Clore, because they really understand that I, I'm very personal with my parts. I don't, even though the money's great, you know, I don't necessarily want to be the next matron in Chicago. Um, right. But Walter Bobby, you know what I had a great time doing with Walter Bobby? I had a great time originating. Uh, the part that I did in uh, School for Lies, which was yes. delicious, with Hamish Linklater, who I really think you should play his younger brother at some point. And it was just lovely. It was such a lovely experience. And and that was another play where the physicality meant so much. And, of course, Walter has that kind of a background. And um, I'm not sure he was ever a choreographer, but he you know, certainly you know, put... Chicago together with the help of Anne Ranking mm-hmm. and uh, you know at one point I said you know call me crazy but I'm pretty sure Walter the only way to get out of this weird brilliant monologue that David Ives has written which is all nonsense arf, arf, and stuff like that it's a woman having like an insane breakdown because she's so apoplectic that the leading lady has just you know dissed her like crazy the only thing I can do to end this is to sit in that chair because I I had been sitting in the chair listening to uh, Mamie Gummer just 
do this long diatribe about about me and how awful I am after I had just done the same thing to her but she like creams me with it and you know you just see my character get madder and madder and madder and I just said I think the armchair that I'm sitting in I have to do a backward somersault out of it <laughs> so God bless Walter Bobby again fearless director like Marsha mm-hmm. fearless like Lila Neugebauer fearless and he said great we'll get a fight choreographer in let's do it and so, at that point, at the end of, or during that, that um, uh, strange monologue that David did, and by the way, the nonsense uh, syllables were in iambic pentameter. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was an absolutely amazing, you know, three minutes of my life on stage. I went backwards in the chair, and I had been an acrobat when I was a kid, and I did a back somersault and wound up on my hands and knees barking, which is what needed to be done uh, as uh, per the uh, script and the nonsense syllables. It was really fun. So as long as I have a director who isn't, you know, hamstrung by, we got to get this done in two weeks, or, well, this is the way we did it before, or or, this is is the way I want it. I'm right. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, no, you're not. I mean, anyway, I, I'm, I'm just running rampant over all your questions. What else do you No, 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 no. I, I love hearing about all of that. And I, there's so many things that I wanted to say. First off, I love that you talked about Walter Bobby. I ran into him on 72nd Street him. yesterday. He lives right there. Yes, he's selling his apartment. Um, I started my little side directing career assisting him on a production of Chicago. And he's uh-huh. incredible. And I was on my way to film an audition, uh, a self-tape. And kind of told him what it was, and he gave me like the most incredible pep talk beforehand. Oh, that's and I great. feel like I had a better, much better time filming that's because great. of him. What do you feel about these self tapes? I am done with them. I'm done I with them. I can't take them anymore. No, me neither. I personally also just am a perfectionist and uh-huh. watch it too many times, and I could spend seven hours doing yeah. this. You know, I, I have not. That's an exaggeration, but I just am ready to be in the room with someone, yeah. look in a director's eyes, have a discussion about yeah. the character and the play, and then leave it, throw my sides away, and walk out of Ripley Rear. Yeah, you know? that's what it is. And it's like these self tapes and. They go into this black hole. You never hear anything about it. Oh, yes. I bet you hear stuff about no, it. No, I don't. I don't. And it's like, tell me what I'm doing wrong so I can do it right for you. That's where the podcast was born out of, was like me mm-hmm. wanting to have those conversations. Yeah. But, you know, what people will say and what the casting directors say in the podcast is like, all you can, if you're, if you keep getting brought in, it means your tape gets down to the final, yeah. you know, when we're in theater and we have callbacks. Yeah. We can suss it out if we knew we were close or right, if we knew we were right. doing well. And if we keep getting close to jobs, right, we know right. we're doing something right. But with television... Well, I'm, in, I'm incredibly close to this show. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Well, so. you know, I auditioned for like the Law & Order franchise. I think it was 12 times before I got one. See? What you were just talking about, yeah. so much of it is obviously relationships. You know people. You've known people over time. People think of you for projects. You have a uh, very specific... I don't want to say type because I don't think that's the wrong thing, but you're very, you're beautiful, but you're also very funny. And you're also <laughs> not, you know, and you're not afraid to get down and dirty and do a somersault over the back of a chair while you're barking, no, you know? I ask for it. Yeah. And I wonder in the beginning, you, Bill Finn and you and Mary Testa and that group that did In Trousers and uh-huh. Falsetto Land and all of that. And of course, you were the original Trina, which is so incredible. <laughs> you all kind of 
came up together. And then all of you have gone on to have amazing careers. But you, when we, you were just starting out, that must have been like an incredible time. It was. It, it, it was. But really, that time wasn't the actor's time. That time was Billy's time. Yeah. I, I know that everybody went on to things that I think even superseded their early work with Finn. I know mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. I know Mary certainly has. And I know that Chip has. I mean, yes. he got into the woods shortly after yeah. the falsettos. Uh, Michael Rupert certainly is an iconic actor. Mm-hmm. Aside probably from, you know, the fact that those three men were the original trio of, of, of men in that show. If you notice, there have been a lot of women. Mm-hmm. It the the women was like a a, um, a carousel or you know mm-hmm. whatever yeah it, it, there was a different woman in every transmogrification of that show I mm-hmm. think except for me mm-hmm. uh, oh and maybe Barbara Walsh because she did it up at Hartford and then went on to Broadway to do it um, Faith replaced what was to have been my part in Falsetto Land mm-hmm. uh, James did invite me to do that but I was attached to Secret Garden at that point. But we all needed to separate a little bit. All of us have had, particularly me and Chip, have had times when we weren't even talking to Billy. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really because we were so close. Mm. You know, I had known him since I was 16 and had been singing with him since then and had done a lot of the orchestration or arrangements for uh, In Trousers and Marshall Falsettos. And our reputation with him has been burnished because of time, because they have become such iconic theatrical pieces. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but In Trousers right now, In Trousers, by the way, is my very favorite Billy Finn show. I love Mm. it. But it has been completely rediscovered by an entire new generation of kids. And we're talking about kids in high school, kids the same age I was when I first started singing that stuff with Billy. If you go to hashtag In Trousers fan art, thousands of drawings... And kids that are sitting in high school drawing about Marvin. And I think because each one of those characters you can really identify with. I mean, you can certainly identify with odd odd woman out, Mm -hmm. uh, woman scorned. Mm -hmm. Um, You can certainly identify with, you know, the Mendel, the sort of, you know, quirky, funny guy that is going to get the girl. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the very, very confused um, Marvin who... He wants the things he wants when he wants it. And, of course, Marvin is Billy. He's a... Of course it's autobiographical. That's mm-hmm. Billy. That's who Billy was. Mm-hmm. And Wizard was a boyfriend of Billy's. You know, it was all very, very... You know, I'm not going to say strictly autobiographical, but he certainly took pieces mm-hmm. of his life and put it up there on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think there's something to be said about... You all are pointed to as a group when people talk about people coming up together or like, oh, the Bill Finn crew. And, you know, you all went on to have great careers. But there's something about, I think, to talk about young artists today and people maybe listening to the podcast of the people that you are creating work with right now or finding a new composer and singing for them. Sometimes, like, you never know where that's going to lead you or, or, you know, maybe someone saw you in that at some point and then Mm. called you in for that. So I I just think it's an interesting, just talk about community and, um, and you all, I don't know, just, I just think of some incredibly talented people that were working together early in their career. Well, I think the interesting word here is relationship. 
mm-hmm. because a lot of relationships go through phases mm-hmm. where you do grow apart mm-hmm. and maybe you're friendly maybe you don't speak for a couple of years but then maybe you're at a party and you start talking again mm-hmm. and I don't think that that's necessarily unhealthy none of us has time to be friends every day with mm-hmm. everybody we've ever known or worked for I think that's asking too much of us mm-hmm. and that's not to say we should be unkind about people that we have created with mm-hmm. but just because okay well we're not creating now but that doesn't mean we're not that we don't have affection for not only what we had created but for the person that they have become mm-hmm. you know whenever I see Billy friend, I'm like hey Billy how are you doing I just called him on his birthday and mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm very proud of the legacy of Trina of yeah. In Trousers and March of the Falsettos you know do I wish I had kind of hung on to that um, you know the back of that fast moving train sure but that wasn't my choice that was his choice and that's his choice to make but because of that I got to work with splendid people I mean if I had stayed working just with Billy I might not have gotten to do even Beehive which showed me I could be funny I didn't think I could be funny Mm, uh, you know, Billy that. said, well, you know, Mary's the one that gets the applause and the laughs. So all of your songs, you can't, you know, they're not going to end on the album or, or in the show and, and you don't get the laughs. It's, it, and it's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to get any laughs in this show. But then I did Beehive and all of a sudden I was the comedian in the show with these silly impressions I did of like Connie Francis and Petula Clark, you know, getting to go and do The Mystery of Edwin Drood again. I replaced in that show, but because the lady before me was so controversial, I, I, was, I sort of lucked out because George Rose loved me and he was not fond of the lady who had done it before. And so he would come to me and, and I would say, how come I'm not getting that laugh? And, and he'd say, darling, darling, they can't understand you. But the first time they don't understand you, they don't trust you. And then what? They do not listen. You know, and it's like, oh, my God. So from then on, he was really a mentor. But then I went right from Mr. Veteran Drood. I did Up Against It. And then I did Secret Garden. Which I want to talk about okay, because okay. if I had you, I'm sure you talk about it a lot, but if I had you on the podcast and yeah. I know people want to hear about yeah. it, I mean, I want to hear about everything. You know, the podcast is more geared towards the business. So like, I'm interested in maybe like how that job came to you, but I'm also interested in how many people in this, women in this business have sung the song, you know, and said, if I had a fine white horse, yeah. everyone knows that. If I had a fine white horse. I'd take you for the ride today But since I have no fine white horse inside I'll have to stay And empty all the chamber pots And scrub the floors and such But what's that to do on a fine white horse? It seems to me not much I should have a whole the Alison Fraser audition song book because they sing them all. Yes, I mean, really, the stuff from Romance, Romance, mm-hmm. and uh, Secret Garden, and uh, uh, Beehive. Oh, you need a rock and roll song? 
Get the beehive score. Yeah, yeah it totally. so funny. There is and some... then, of course, much of the falsetto is in trousers. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, funny. There is something about Secret Garden that, like, rises, that is in, like, this. It's in this, like, Les Mis, you know, um, Miss Saigon, these, like, kind of big, iconic musicals. Right. And your yeah. role in your song, especially because you were also nominated for that role, is something we think about. And did you... So I guess my first question is... Can you tell us a little bit about how the role came to you? Was it just a cold audition? No, it wasn't. Um, I was ve- very pregnant at the time. Uh, so that would have been 90 or late 89. At the time, I was at a place called the Three of Us Studios down on 19th Street between 5th and 6th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm... the Three of Us Studios. And it used to be a big uh, voiceover studio. And I ran into a friend of mine named David Loud, who's marvelous music director and he said Alison Alison what are you doing here and I said I'm auditioning for you know some voiceover and because I used to do like you know 20 voiceover auditions a week back in the day and that's why I have a nice pension coming uh, oh nice yes. don't go non-union don't stay non-union yes. otherwise you'll have no pension yes uh, I said why are you, what are you doing here he said I'm doing um, auditions I'm playing auditions for this show I'm music directing down in Virginia. And I'm saying, oh, that's nice. And I said, what is it? And he says, the secret garden. I'm like, oh, that's great. And you know, I'm sort of known for being able to do accents. And the accent for Martha is a Yorkshire accent, Mm -hmm. which is not the easiest accent in the world. It's like that uh, all creatures great and small, that Yorkshire accent. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's fun, but it's bitch to get right. And he said, you should audition for it. I'm like, David, is, did Martha have a big night, you know, a, a few months ago? Because look at how pregnant I am. And he said, no, no, they're not doing it until the spring. I'm like, oh. and he said, you have to. You're exactly what they're looking for. And Lucy Simon had a big background in like, you know, sort of folk pop rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that she had done some children's uh, albums with her sister, uh, Carly Simon. And I think there, there's another sister too. And she has a very specific sound. It's very folk and kind of hippie-ish, dare I say. Mm-hmm. And of course, Secret Garden was rediscovered uh, during the time of the hippies as, oh, this is all about um, spiritual regrowth through mm-hmm. natural living. And I said, I, you know, David, I haven't got anything to sing. You know, I have no music. And he said, it doesn't matter. She has to hear you. She has to hear you. Because I do have a, I do have a peculiar voice. I, I don't think a lot of people sound exactly like me. Mm. I mean, there are a few. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, somebody fools me, but um, it's it's a it's a peculiar sound. And again, because I listened a lot to folk and you know James Taylor and um, country western music and rock and roll mm-hmm. rather than show tunes. I listened to show tunes when I was quite little, like you know, like five, six, seven, eight. But after that, I really discovered rock and roll and, and folk and pop. Mm. So I had a sensibility for that. And I said, all right, I'll sing, I'll sing Big Rock Candy Mountain, okay? And you know, they threw me some sides too. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm a good, I'm a good first reader. And, and Big Rock Candy Mountain is like, uh, 
On a summer's day in the month of May, a burly little bum came a hiking, traveling down that lonesome road. He was looking for his lichen. He was searching for a land that was far away, beside them crystal fountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. And it's just, it's that oh, same kind that of a, so it's the same kind of a lilt. <clears throat> That if I had a fine white horse, I'd take you for a ride today. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, um, you know, I obviously couldn't do that show so close to when the baby was born in April. I think Vicki Clark actually did it down there. But then when they were going to bring it back to New York, they remembered me and I went in and I did audition again. But I'm pretty sure that... Uh, Lucy and Marsha Norman, I, I think that they were sort of set on me. I think that I had the cadence of Martha down, you know, yes. and, um, and I found the humor in, in Martha. And so I think Susan Shulman agreed. I think that she had second thoughts when it came to the Broadway version. And I think that I was the last person rehired and it made me very angry because hmm. uh, I was really good in the workshop and you know I had done what I do which is basically say what I think because mm -hmm. I got a pretty good hold on that mm -hmm. and I know what I don't know what's right for the whole show necessarily mm -hmm. but I know what's right for my character mm -hmm. and Lucy had written two songs for Martha and one of them was uh, if I had a fine white horse I'd take it all right today and then the second one was like I can't remember what it was, but it was, you know, when Martha was saying goodbye to uh, Daisy Lennox, uh, uh, Mary Lennox at the end, mm -hmm. played by Daisy Egan, she was like, you have to feel real good. You have to be real good today. I mean, it obviously wasn't the same tune, but it was kind of a ditty like the first one. And I just kind of jokingly said, I'm sorry, there's a musical theater rule. Only one ditty per character allowed per show. And they listened to me. Hmm. And they came up with Hold On. And it was mm -hmm. like, you know, that just broke everything open. It was like, mm -hmm. that deepens the character of Martha. Mm -hmm. You know, that mm -hmm. deepens your show. Instead of one 11 o'clock number, there were two. There was How Will I Ever Know? And then second punch comes in with Hold On. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Or maybe Hold On was first. Maybe Hold On was first and then mm -hmm. uh, How Will I Ever Know? With the glorious, ugh, I can't believe she's gone, Rebecca Luca. Yes. And I cannot believe it. Yes. I have to tell a marvelous story about Rebecca Luca because oh, I just, oh please. God, I love her so much. And we stayed friends to the end and I saw her. Um, not often because she had so many people going to see her, but I think I saw her four or five times during that last year of her sickness. And mm. we just, uh, I mean, she was incandescent. Mm. And my son, Nat, 
who obviously, um, uh, he was very young when Secret Garden came out. I, I, I think we ran for like almost two years. So towards the end of the run, John Babcock, who played Colin, uh, said, I'll bring, he, and, and his voice had changed, so he was out of the show by then. So he said, I'll bring Nat to the show. Okay, oh, and if you remember the beginning of the show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it was this glorious, glorious colored, um, uh, like mural that uh, you know it was this stylized bouquet and faces, and it it was on acrylic and it was lit from behind, so it was like almost like weird stained glass, and it opened up to a bare stage with just I think that I think there were like just ch- chandeliers. And then very, very slowly, at the very beginning of the piece, this magnificent oval-shaped Baroque frame, you know, Victorian frame, actually, Mm. comes down, and it's 10 feet high. And Rebecca Luker, and it's oval-shaped, Rebecca Luker is sitting, you know, looking for all the world like a a, a glorious, you know, angel. Mm. And she's in lavender, and she's singing that beautiful song, Clusters of crocus. Of course, I'm singing at the octave down. And, you know, beautifully, beautifully sung. And the whole audience is just stunned by this, not only the spareness of the set, but the crystalline perfection of not only the way Rebecca sang, but the way she looked. And at that point, the audience, which is just dead silent, hears this voice from one of the, the boxes, and this two-year-old voice saying, Becca, singing in egg! <laughs> it's hilarious. And how Rebecca did not start laughing is beyond me, because the whole audience just laughed. And of course, John brought him out, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, he taught him that he had to be really quiet, and he was ready with the the mouth uh, being covered by his hand. But uh, so he did ultimately see the whole show. Is that hilarious or what? So sweet. But um, I got it because I was in the right place at the right time. I had the right voice. I had the right sensibility for the music that um, Lucy was writing for it, which was, you know, I think it's one of the reasons John Cameron was cast too, because Mm -hmm. the parts that we were doing, the sort of proletariat parts, she really wanted it to have that folky, feel mm-hmm. and uh that's what that's what we did that's what we did and of course you know john went on to do 
Hedwig and the Angry Inch, mm-hmm. and just he's just the most delicious character and writer and performer and activist. He's just he's the best. I love yeah. him. So that was luck. And uh, well, when, it was kind of like you know when people say what's meant for you will be for you or what you know whatever that quote is, but it's kind of like you were in the right place at the right time. I was. You also. That music director you yeah, knew, if yeah. you didn't know him, he could have walked right by well, you. Well, that's true. Or he could have been the type of guy that looks at me and says, oh, she's pregnant, forget it. But mm-hmm. they did remember. I'm sure it was Lucy and maybe Marsha. Um, I'm sure it was those two that just said, we want Allison. Yeah. You know, because I don't think Susan did. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure she wanted, you know, like I know that people were auditioning right up until mm-hmm. I called Susan up and said, the only power I have over the misery I feel right now is to take myself out of the running. I'm not available to you. Wow. I said that. Wow. I said it. Wow. So you called her up. This was after the workshop. No, she called me. Oh, okay. And she asked me what was wrong. And I said, Susan, you know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know that people are coming up to me, telling me about all the people who are auditioning for my part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought I did a good job. Well, you know, we're just exploring different, different, you know, different actors. And I said, that's fine. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to have my first Christmas with my child ruined. I'm not going to. So the only, the only control I have is to say, I'm not going to do it. Mm. Wow. The next day I had an offer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's though that, that's you a just perfect have story to, of. You have to. Be, you have to be prepared to lose something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a baby's first Christmas. I was not going to allow anything to destroy it. Mm-hmm. And instead, it turned out to be a wonderful, triumphant Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, and I had a lovely, you know, time creating that part. I really did. And I mm-hmm. feel I, I added value to the character. Absolutely. You added value to the character and that song. Both of them mm-hmm. are in the musical theater canon and will be forever so it's it was really you know i I don't know that's that's a really amazing and when national disasters happen like 9 11 people would you know say you have to listen to hold on right now you Mm -hmm. have to listen and uh and then in the pandemic people Mm -hmm. have been saying hold on is what's getting me through this Mm -hmm. you know and it's like so if you get to sing a song that helps people Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to use the words big break, but it's like maybe the only way to ask this question in a clear way. But when in your career did you feel like, I think in my mind, like the easy answer, or maybe maybe it's the truth, is like, oh, Secret Garden and the Tony Award, that's when things felt like they changed. But, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was something obscure. Maybe it was a moment. Maybe it wasn't even a show. And maybe you're going to say, I don't even feel like there was one moment where things changed for me. But I just wonder when things went from auditioning auditioning um to oh allison frazier and people starting to know know your name maybe you were getting requests for things when did you feel like things shifted in your career and why 
do you think that was? Maybe well, it was the Tony noms. Maybe no, it, it was wasn't. something else. It certainly wasn't. I don't think I would have gotten Tony nominations unless Beehive had happened. That because I had been so tied up with Billy Finn and the wonderful shows that we did do together, when I wasn't tied up with him anymore, n- not through my own volition. I mean, he replaced me mm-hmm. for the L.A. company. And it's like, hmm. how could you do that? And I was like, wow, okay. I mean, and again, I must say that James Lapine did ask me to do Falsetto Man, so that sort of ameliorated that initial pain. Mm-hmm. But it was a horrifying experience, and I was like, I didn't quite know what I was, what was going to happen to me. But then when Beehive came along, and it was another kind of show that, you know, Patty, oh God, another one that's gone, the great, great, great singer, Patty Darcy, who really helped me to learn how to sing rock and roll, like best rock and roll singer ever, I gotta say. But we would improv funny scenes, and we were largely responsible for a lot of that scripted stuff. Cool. Uh, that Larry Gallagher had come up with and we just said you know this is good but we can do something better and he let us do it and that's the script now if you do Beehive the original names are Allison, Patty, Jasmine you know it's being done a lot Adrian, now. Lennox uh, yeah that, that musical they and just did it at Paper Mill it's like happening a lot yeah this year. exactly and that was us we put that together mm. you know me and Patty for mm-hmm. the most part, the and so that comedian, uh, the the comic parts. Yeah. So I think once I got really good reviews for that, I mean, they were sort of calling me the comic person in it. Yeah. Which was really I'm funny. I've been told I'm sort of the, the tragic and edgy one, and it's like or the sad edgy one. It's like, well, maybe I'm not. And the interesting thing about that is that I was asked to do. The opening of Playwrights Horizons, uh, the new Playwrights Horizons Theater. So I've, I'm so old. I've seen all of these theaters get new theaters uh-huh. um, and new spaces. And, you know, Billy was there and we were fine. By that time, everything was fine. We mm-hmm. had been working together on some other music before that. He, he had me do a, a, a demo of like a Mary Poppins pitch that he wanted to do so we were fine you know so we go up and down mm-hmm. it's like a relationship mm-hmm. it's sort of like an old boyfriend only he's not a boyfriend <laughs> that's what it is yeah and uh, he's just somebody who is very very formative and sometimes when somebody is that formative you have to get away to realize what you are capable of by yourself mm-hmm. and maybe you're capable of things that other people are not cognizant of you being capable of and I think that's what happened here Mm -hmm. and from then on I I went right from Beehive into Mystery Veteran Druid then I had Nat then the Secret Garden so there was really a lot of stuff and shortly after Secret Garden I did um, Romance Romance Mm -hmm. and I got you know Tony Award nomination for Secret Garden and for Mm -hmm. Romance Romance and uh, so I, I think it was that sort of very, very um, fertile time. But I was gonna, I'll was i get back to the story about revisiting March of the Falsettos after all of this experience. And this would have been in 2003 uh, because Rusty died about two we- three weeks after this performance. And I think Faith did her part in Falsetto Lens, but all the, I don't think Steve Bogardis was doing it. But I think that Michael was doing it and Chip was doing it. 
and I think Carol Lee was there doing Falsetto Land, and but it was at Playwrights Horizons, and James Lapine was not directing it because he wasn't available. Lonnie Price was directing it, directing it. So I, I just felt like, oh my God, I can, I can do what I want here. It'll be great. You know, he'll tell me if it's bad, and it was like doing a different show, because I had all that experience. I had the, oh yeah, I got, I got. A lot of response in Edwin Jude. I got huge laughs in Beehive. I got great response in Romance, Romance. I mean, that thing was like a, it was like a finely wound Swiss clock. You know, that the timing that Bakula and I had was just unbelievably good, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it, it got to that point where we kept minimalizing and minimalizing, and it was just crystal clear, but hilarious. And also just an amazing score to sing and then we did that fabulous album afterwards so I had this whole body of work that had nothing to do with Finn behind me and then to revisit that wonderful material material that I was very very familiar with but to have all of this life experience brought to it it was a very different experience than Mm -hmm. it had been when I was just sort of basically in Bill Finn's thrall. Yeah. And I felt like completely liberated. And I had told Bill, look, I really appreciate that you're allowing me to, you know, do this. But uh, because, you know, he had, he had really hurt me when he replaced me. And uh, it was a really hurtful thing. But sometimes things can grow out of hurt. And I think I grew out of the hurt of his the devastating thing that he did to me. Mm-hmm. And I had always stayed friends with Chip, and I'm really friends with Michael now, and I love seeing Steve. And we had a reunion like a month ago for the 40th oh. anniversary. It was really nice because we, you know, we went through some stuff together. We created something together. That was, you know, our baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but revisiting that material was so liberating. And, mm. you know, and I had told Billy at any point, I might have to quit, so you have to have a backup because Rusty's dying. Mm-hmm. And if I have to be in the hospital with him, you are going to lose me. But somehow it didn't happen, and right after that, which is, was, of course, the last show that Rusty ever saw, he had, to be pick, he had to be picked up and brought up the stairs in a wheelchair by about six guys because the elevator wasn't working. And it was a very moving experience to have him there. Mm-hmm. And I just said, I am going to give the performance of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the first time, I got to sing I'm Breaking Down on a stage because it never made it into In Trousers. Wow. Yeah, when I was doing it. So it was like, let's do it. And we did all sorts of fun stuff like, like, you know, I did a a trapeze walk, you know, and and I did like, you know, the Trina will be hanging from a chandelier in one of the other songs. And... You know, I, was, I, I like used a, a phone cord and hung myself. But so can you, I'm breaking down. I'm breaking down, down, down. You ask me if it's fun to cry over nothing. It is, I'm breaking down. The most interesting thing was, and it was completely spontaneous, which was in um, I Never Wanted to Love You. And it's also called Marvin Hits Trina. Mm. And when I did it initially, it was just, you know, he, he really, you know, did the fix up and 
and I was very sad. And when I did it in this um, revival, not revival, reunion show for the opening of Playwrights, it was more like, I just, I just was like thinking, hey, what an asshole. And it, I actually started, I don't think I said what an asshole, but I started going, oh, like that. And it's, I just realized now it's a much better reaction because what it does is it allows Trina to go on with her life, just like I went on with my life successfully mm-hmm. after my initial um, almost um, unnatural closeness with Billy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I didn't know all of that, first of all. And I love that you got to have this full circle moment of doing the part, doing it at the iconic Playwrights Horizons. And that story about your husband getting to see you do that was just was just really special. Yeah, Um, it was it was an amazing experience. And then after that, you know, when a kid gets to go into school, life gets more complex. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, once Rusty got ill, at eight or nine, it was like, okay, I got to do, I got to do uh, anything to make money for insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, Rusty's illness was a million dollars out of SAG after, or after, I guess it was at the time. So, um, you know, he's hospitalized seven times, seven operations. So I was very, very concentrated on making as much insured uh, uh, work as, as I could mm-hmm. and also making enough money. Mm-hmm. And making sure that uh, Rusty was being brought to the doctors when I had to go to uh, work at a studio. And remember, we didn't have home studios. I mean, every audition, you had to go someplace. I mean, I'd be going to three, four, five auditions at different places in Manhattan a day while my husband was, my husband was in a hospital and my son needed to be picked up from work. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, I had a, a young man helping me named Chris Monroe, who has remained a great friend, and mm-hmm. he was incredibly helpful. But, you know, I think, ah, oh, what would have happened if I'd gone to L.A.? I probably would have been miserable, because I'm just not that happy in front of the camera. You know, I wish I could be. And I think I could be if it was the right, right experience. Like, working with Chris Maloney was divine. He was the nicest man in the world. And I do realize that because I wanted that job so badly, I prepared like crazy. So I just had all the words there. So mm-hmm. is it a question of just being super prepared? But how many times are you not going to get a part for the same show and go, oh my God, I'm going to memorize this. And I don't know. Yeah. But now we've all gone like, well, you know, you can put that thing up on the, I don't know if you do this, but I, I don't memorize them sometimes. Do you memorize them all? No. No, and you know what? I I had a moment a couple of years ago. This is just really quick, but I worked so hard for a self tape audition, and I memorized all the scenes. It was for the Glass Menagerie for the Gentleman Caller, and mm-hmm. I really want to play that part. And I memorized it all. Sent the self tape, didn't get anything. And then the day after I sent that in, I um, got another audition for a play up at Syracuse Stage, and. It was like, I'm not memorizing it. I'm not putting all this time and energy into something that I'm just going to send a tape off and never going to get. So I bought poster boards and I wrote all the words down on the poster boards, mm-hmm. put them up on easels, filmed the tape in 30 okay. minutes, yeah. got the job. See, I, I and think... since then I was like, there's something about seeing the words mm-hmm. in front of me. Makes me a better actor. I'm freer. Well, you know what I do. I, uh, I, I put the words up on the desktop. 
you know, and I put it close to eyeliner, and it's like, you know, I'm fam- I always go over the material like course. 10 or 12 times, but to not have that, oh my God, this has to be memorized, because that's a lot of time to invest in something that might not happen, but, you know, then I think, well, I don't get these parts, maybe I should really, really memorize every one. I've also had that you thought know? recently, so, too. But, and if somebody would say that to me, I would do it. Mm-hmm. You know, but the thing about the self tips is it's so rare that you get any feedback at all from your agent, from casting directors, Agreed. anybody. Yeah. yeah. One last question. Okay. I usually like to ask, like, um, at the end of the podcast, to people, like, what what do you wish you knew when you were, you know, just starting out in your young twenties about the business? But I want to talk briefly. I'm going to kind of rephrase the question because I love that you're a teacher and that I just got to watch um, some of your students sharing. And I think that that's a really great, um, I I I just, yeah. And knowing you, I'm just so happy that you're doing it. I think you're so good at it. I think your students are lucky to have you. So I guess my question now for you specifically is what do you wish you're watching these students move into an industry that is a different industry than it was when you first started. It's a different industry than it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. What do you want them to know about the business Well, and the way this I all want works? them to never let anybody tell them they can't do something. I want them not to second guess themselves. I want them, I mean, I, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I had a... A voice teacher. I, I quit Carnegie Mellon early on, and then I later on, you know, graduated from Fordham. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, after my husband died, and that's how I wound up teaching there. But I had a teacher that listened to the odd timbre of my voice and said, "You should get out of theater. You're never going to work with a voice like that." <sighs> and you know, within three years of my coming to New York, not only had I, you know, started working with Billy Finn and the shows that were to become in Trousers and March of the Falsettos, but I had a voiceover career that made more money than let me tell you than he would ever have made Mm -hmm. as a teacher so it's like to have somebody say that to you it's one of the reasons I quit I just said that's toxic and my class I never judge a person's talent what I do is I get them to be as good as they can be or better Mm -hmm. you know if somebody's an exceptional talent I want them to push themselves to be more truthful or more uh, uh, go outside of this safe box that you're in. And I'm mm-hmm. talking about uh, talented vocally. Mm-hmm. And uh, But if you can't sing, I'm even more interested in you because, you know, Robert Preston couldn't really sing. Rex Harrison couldn't really sing. Mm-hmm. Elaine Stretch, Stretch couldn't really sing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say believe in yourself. Believe in your originality. You are the only one of you in the world and I think that is a large part of the reason I made a name for myself because mm-hmm. there's only one of me mm-hmm. thank God most people are saying mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no. there's only one of me and I guess one of the lessons I would send out to people who are trying to make uh, a career in this business it's um, control your temper if you are enraged the way I've been in, in the past just find a way to zen out in the moment deal with it because you don't want to get a reputation for being difficult mm-hmm. be nice to every receptionist you ever meet respectful be respectful to every because you don't know when they're going to be a director or mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. agent or 
casting agent. For God's sakes, the most important man in the room of an audition for a musical is the pianist. And you know what? He's probably writing musicals. Mm -hmm. That's right. So you be respectful. If you make a mistake, don't look at him as if he made the mistake. Mm -hmm. You present him with sheet music that is legible and clearly marked. You know, so I think that those are very, very easy things to implement. Yeah. And they will help you along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. as we talked about and kind of has been the theme of our conversation is relationships. And those yeah. people are the people that you're going to run into and say, oh, you should come audition for this musical. Or, you know, it's these people like how Secret Garden happened. You know, yeah. like these are the people that are... The reasons we, you know, get the jobs and everything, and you never know which relationship is going to blow, bloom or what's going to turn into but something. But again, some relationships are not sustainable. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of actors I will not work with. Mm -hmm. I won't. And I've been approached about it, and I'm like, I'm not going to put myself through that. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it. Absolutely. And God bless my agents for understanding. Yeah. yeah. You know, but if somebody has given me disrespect and... A rehearsal room and fr fr frankly it has not happened a lot lately mm -hmm. it, it actually I don't think it's happened at all lately I've had I've been really really lucky for the past like you know seven eight years but if somebody has behaved in a manner that I find reprehensible I don't want to work with that person mm -hmm. you know the the Rehearsal room is an intimate place. Mm. And you remember Paradise Lost. We all loved each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had such a great coalescence. And, you know, the fact that we were at the end of Paradise as far as theater was concerned. Yes. You know, it, it really was Paradise Lost for a whole year and a half. Oh, my gosh. You yeah. know, it's, it's crazy, that timing. Yeah. But we all loved each other. Mm -hmm. And... It's lucky. Yeah. And Death Trap, too. Death Trap was mm -hmm. a lovely, you know, the second Death Trap for me was just the loveliest, loveliest antidote to what had been a not such good experience with that same show. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, things come in threes, so I'm waiting for our third get our well, third time. Get, we get Marcia, back what are you going to put us in, please? <laughs> Absolutely. Come on. Well, Allison, thank you so much <laughs> for chatting with me. This is so helpful. It's so important to like cross-reference what uh -huh. casting directors say and what directors say with actors' experiences. Yeah. And your career is uh, one that anyone could envy, so I'm grateful for your time Great. today. Great, but I wanted them to hear about the... The low times as well as the high times. That's what I'm so happy we talked low, about. There are low times, believe Well, me. because sometimes you can look on your IBDB, you know, with all your Broadway credits, your Wikipedia, and it could just look like, oh, Allison's always worked and it's this perfect career that, you know, and we don't see the in-between lines on a resume. I do not know an actor that hasn't thought at one time or another or many times, I'm never going to work again. Wow. I have never, I have never met an actor mm -hmm. that I could not imagine them saying that because this business is capricious, mm -hmm. and so are pandemics. Mm -hmm. And there are people that are not going to be coming back to New York, mm -hmm. and there are people that are going to be saying, "Ooh, now's my shot." Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be an interesting time. It is an interesting. And there time. are people that go, "Hey, maybe it's a nice idea to look outside at that beautiful garden and make it grow." Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the time to do that now. I don't uh, know. I don't know what's going to happen. I love that. So full of wisdom. Yeah, Thank great. you so much.
For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Instagram and Facebook at The Breakdown with Robbie. We also have some pretty exciting supplementary content over there, like Instagram live catch-ups with some of your favorite podcast guests. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And don't forget to check out TSMA Consulting. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, thanks for listening and get ready for another episode of The Breakdown. Breaking up is my family